James Kennedy, welcome. Thanks, Connor. Nice to be here, man. Looking forward to our chat. James Kennedy is an Irish entrepreneur and businessman who founded the American rugby team, Rugby United New York, in 2018. I first met James in college in Ireland over 20 years ago. I find his story both fascinating and inspiring. Today, we're going to talk about a well-traveled path for many Irish hopefuls and dreamers, moving from the Emerald Isle to the United States, landing on the banks of the Hudson with $300 in his pocket, mental health, and turning his passion for rugby into a major American franchise. Thank you, James, and welcome. Hey, Connor. Good to be here, man. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so let's start from, let's start from the beginning, growing up. Where are you from? Where do you come from? I'm from uh, Tipperary, uh, from a farming community in the parish of Aldenhinch. Uh Yeah, that's where I'm from. It's easy as that. How would you describe your childhood? That's an interesting question. I was talking to someone about this the other day. I could say, uh, in the context of raising kids in America right now, I could say I had a, 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 a bucolic childhood, you know, countryside, freedom, fresh air, you know, spring water, you know, um, health, wellness. But you could also say things like child labor, physical and mental abuse. So it's hard. It's hard because if you say you have a good childhood, it's like you're great. If you say you have a bad childhood, you're great. But you people don't can't accept that you can have both things at the same time. Mm. You know, so which is something I think we can all identify with. But not to get heavy straight away. It's, it's so, so uh, it <laughs> that's was pretty overall, heavy. Overall, a good childhood. It's the, so, it's the made me the person I am. So would you say then that would would that be a typical childhood or was it an exceptional childhood in an Irish I think, context? I think it's dangerous ground here, right? But I think the the how you perceive your childhood, be it a, a middle-class kid from Dalkey or a farmer from Tipperary, how you perceive your childhood is how your childhood is. You know what I mean? It's, it's mm. not, I think it's a typical childhood. I think you you would say the same. Who who got hit harder? Who was shouted at more? Who had who was sad because their computer was broken? Who was sad because their their something else didn't have a computer? It, it's 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 relative. It's a hard question, but yeah, I think um, growing up in a rural ish society, you know, with frustrated parents, you know, I think it would be pretty typical. Sorry, long wind to that answer. That's not really an answer there, but. Um, and when you uh, say frustrated, what, what was the frustration? I think like in my in my dad specifically looking looking back, I see I see I see and my siblings and my many, many cousins and siblings will probably disagree with this, but so it's it's an opinion. Uh is that I don't think my dad was particularly happy being a farmer. I don't think he had much of a choice. Um and I think he I found both boredom, extreme boredom and frustration, and probably anger. At, at that life mm. you know so i think we we are fairly lucky in our lives that we can we can choose i mean maybe he could too maybe maybe he maybe he could have chosen i mean uh but i i looking back i think i saw someone that just wasn't happy um not not all the time a very gregarious and happy man a lot of the time so it's not paint with a broad brush but uh yeah and I'd say that would be pretty typical, Connor. I think, you know, that generation before us, um, mm. you know, you know, they grew up in the 60s, the 50s and 60s. They saw, they had access to media. 
you know, they saw a bigger world they couldn't reach, you know. Yeah, perhaps. Did he ever <laughs> express any uh, ambitions to you? About no, what he would have we done? weren't close. No, we weren't close, Connor. I mean, we I have six siblings and seven of us. He would have been closer to maybe my brother, Brendan. And that's not, not, no comment. On, it's neither here nor there. Um, mm. So we, we wouldn't have had the kind of relationship where we would have shot the shit and that kind of stuff. And I think that's the kind of relationship you build as you get older. And I, you know, being in America by choice and possibly by choice on the whole, I just, it's not a relationship I had with my dad. I think, you know, I'm interested to hear your take on your relationship with your father and that, you know, as you get older and you raise a family yourself, you get to, un you get to understand a bit more, not justify, I'm not saying justify, mm -hmm. but understand a bit more. Um, so, well, I mean, how do you feel about that? It it's similar in in that there was a there's always a distance there, right? Um, we grew up in the eighties in Ireland, right? There was no money, right? Yeah. There was very little ambition. People, most people knew how their lives were going to be lived, and how they were going to end. And unless, of course, you jumped on a boat or a plane and left Ireland for London or for the United States. But that would have been a huge, huge life-changing decision back in the 80s, right? So there was no coming back. Plane tickets were yeah. 500 to $1,000. So once you make that move, you're gone. Today, yeah. with technology and airplanes and everything, else, it's, it's, much more, it's, much more, um, it's much more easy to do. But I certainly think that relationships with Irish males in particular in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s, were difficult. There was no such thing as emotional intelligence, right? No. There was silence, and there was a, there was, but there was a connection there as well. You know, I, 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 I have a feeling that all our relationships with our fathers were very similar, and it was very, very difficult to build really meaningful yeah. relationships. How, what, what, what was your relationship like with your mother? It was good. My mom's a, a good woman. Um, Hard worker. Yeah, I mean, they were both hard workers. I don't know why that's important, but uh, it was good. You know, um, our moms are, Irish moms are, they kind of live in their own, uh, how do you say this? They're also a different breed, you know what I mean? And I think, you know, the Albanian woman moms, Italian moms, American moms, I guess I don't want to say a different, maybe it's a generational thing as well, not not mm. necessarily a nationalistic thing, but like um, they, 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 that generation, you know, remember, it it spans from the 50s to the noughts. It spans from no international, no, like, no electricity in mm -hmm. Ireland, in a, in a lot of houses, to a fully electrified, uh, connected country. From deep Catholicism and all the, the ritualistic bullshit that came with that and the nuances of marriage and sex and homosexuality and, and all this stuff and sexual abuse and to one of the most liberal societies in, in the world so you know so it's mm. that's a very interesting time period to have gone through and i think you get these conflicted characters that are quite they're intro introverted but stoic would be a word you know it's mm. a nice word that nobody uses anymore mm. uh, but um uh, and very hard working so yeah i don't know my mom traveled a bit before she settled down as well i think she had a leg up there on my dad you know mm. um she worked in Canada for a while and a few other places. So, um, yeah, not another not answer answer there, Conor. But sorry, but it's uh, uh, did they ever I mean, tell you how they met? 
No, no, I, I never had. I was actually thinking about this the other day. There was someone I know not well, Johnny, Johnny, Johnny Cirillo. Mm. He interviewed his family uh, on, on video, on, you know, digital videos on CVHS. Fairly, I mean, maybe a year ago. He made a little mm. short movie about his family. He went and interviewed his grandparents, his aunts, his uncles, his neighbors to get their stories. And I thought, I mean, Johnny's a very creative guy. Um, I couldn't do it like him, but it's something maybe we should all look at doing is documenting. Mm. Our lives are documented through Instagram, so you know, it's Facebook, LinkedIn, so on and so forth, through this here. But um, it, it would be interesting to see those stories. Mm-hmm. We still like stories, right? We're still Irish. We still love our stories. So, yeah, um, we're storytellers. No, I, we're storytellers. But I've never said with my mom, and you know, it's definitely on my list as of late to sit with her and ask her questions that she probably won't answer. You know. Mm. When did she first have sex? Like when the who was her first boyfriend? How did she meet my dad? You know, happiest moments, saddest moments, so, you know, hopes and dreams, all that kind of stuff. Hmm. We, we couldn't have had those conversations twenty years ago. <laughs> so, you know, I don't, I don't know if we can gonna... still have them now, James. To be honest, oh, no, um, no, we're not we there yet. Sex? Um, I'm not sure. But so tell me, um, where in, in terms of your community, right? You had a farm. But there was a bar attached, a pub attached to the bar. All right, a pub attached yeah. to the farm, right? But there was a. My dad had the bar in the village, so the farm was a couple of miles away, three miles away. Um, he sold his milk quota. Uh, I think I was eight or nine, so geez, whatever the maths is on that, thirty-five years ago, mm. and um, bought a bought the bar that was previously owned by his aunt. Um, he was he wanted. He was, I guess, once again, in hindsight, he was like a fireman or not wanting to do something new. Mm. And um, so from when I was nine, I like me, all my siblings, we worked in that bar. And um, um, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, I didn't enjoy it. I didn't enjoy being around. I was, I wasn't comfortable in, I wasn't that comfortable in my community. I think I was an awkward introvert as a kid. I think mm. uh, my relationship with my dad didn't help that. You know, it made me feel even more awkward and me more diverted. So I wasn't comfortable around the the, the farmers that would go to a bar like that or the, hur- the you know, hurling is my art sport in, in our parish. Mm-hmm. I just didn't feel comfortable. And um, it was something that was pointed out to me in a recent trip home by uh, I guess, um, a, 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 a guy who would have been, a, you know, county, county tip hurler back in the day, someone we really looked up to. And um, so it was kind of nice to see that that wasn't just in my head. It was actually a real thing. I was... I just wasn't comfortable, um, uh, awkward. Um, you know, I said, I said, colored probably by my relationship with Seamus, my dad. Um, mm. And, you know, I didn't play hurling. I, it wasn't that I, I was just shit. I was really shit at it. I mean, I'm still, I had the worst hand-eye coordination. <laughs> it was just never going to happen. So I played rugby where, you know, it's easier. You just have to tackle people. Um, so. Um, when did you get into rugby? Again, uh, probably. A very fairly young, I want to say maybe nine or ten. Mm. Uh, my dad played rugby as well, and he 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 liked the game a lot. So there was a local club, uh, a few miles down the road, and um, Newport. I think I joined. I think very young. Actually, I think I I joined Bohemians first. I bounced between a couple of clubs all, all my childhood and teenage years. Uh, uh, Bohemians, which is now UL Bowes and Newport, and um, um, so I, I liked I liked the rugby. Um, the uh, yeah, it was the, the. How good were you? I think 
shit. <laughs> shit. Yeah. It was consistently shit, you know? And um, uh, it was kind of, the funny thing about me playing rugby is, and it, it, it's, I, th I think I commented on it before in maybe another podcast back in the day. It's like, I've played rugby my whole life. I've probably played hundreds, thousands, maybe perhaps thousands of games. Who knows? I, I still play occasionally. I played two games this year. It's this year. The two games this year. Um, the, um, no one ever taught me how to pass the ball or how to kick. Right? It, it was just kind of I don't know where I, I just missed those practices. Um, or you know, and, and I don't know. No one ever sat down and explained the nuances of position. And I, and I never particularly enjoyed watching sport. I still don't really enjoy watching that much sport. Um, I like listening to sport, but like watch it too much. But, but, um, but isn't kicking and passing kind of the fundamentals? Yeah, I learned it a little later in life, but I didn't learn it then. And listen, I like rugby. It's rugby is like farm work. You just you can work really hard, and you can be good and solid. And uh, and I like working hard. So, um, but uh, it was easy. I think uh, maybe better. I think it was a solid journey, man. You know, and I very happy in that role. You know, still very happy in that role. It's just, it's 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 uh, you know. Um, yeah, Robbie. Robbie was Robbie was was nice uh, to me. Would you say there's a kind of a, a familial kind of family thing about rugby, right? So maybe it's the family. I know in Ireland uh, the, the closeness and the bond that rugby teams have with each other. I mean, they're friends for life. Those guys, right? There is something about it that's different to there, other sports. There, there is. Yeah, there's. Um, where I remember talking to a. Someone, talking to a, someone in the military about rugby a few years ago, before rugby United, before all, before that journey, and um, uh, like a high up, almost the, at the very top of the US military, just talking in a on a, yeah, um, an event. I can't remember what the event was, and um, he talk, we got talking about rugby. This guy played rugby, and he talked about honor and rugby, and, and it occurred to me that um. What's what rugby is is because of the nature of the game. It's very violent and physical, but the there's honor in it because how would you say like if I'm at the bottom of a rook and my arms are pinned and I'm playing a team I don't like against people I don't like, they can very easily take my eye, step step on my nose, put mud in my mouth. They can really fuck me up, but they don't. And because the opportunity is there again and again and again, and that's not what happens. Okay, you can focus on the extreme. You know, there is violence. There is fingers broken and necks rolled and shoulders dislocated and often worse. But the, but there isn't. Ninety nine point nine percent of the time, you're exposed to extreme danger, and the other team won't do it. There's an on, that's the honor in rugby. It's not the rugby players boast about the time they broke their ankle or their knuckle or got their eye gouged or gouged an eye. What they're really talking about is all the times they didn't, because it's all the times they didn't is what makes it. And you don't talk about it, but that's the honor of it. That's the it's about not doing that, even though you might want to. You don't do it, you know. So I think that's that's where the that's where that brotherhood comes in and a team versus team thing. And then within your own team, it's it, it is a band of brothers because of the, I suppose the violence and the the exposure you physically get to to harm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, but it's the first one more than the second one. I think looking back is that, you know, um, 
I think the, f- the first and only time I was read Carter was to punch him one of my own players because he kicked another player in the head, you know? So, um, and I was 14 or 13 and it was a very uncomfortable dressing room after that game. I think we lost as well, but, uh, you know, but that was the, because in my, in my child, like in my 13 t- year old brain, it was like, you don't kick someone in the head when they're on the ground and they can't defend themselves. And that was, and that is the truth. You know I mean? That was a one off that guy was just, he saw red, uh, um, I'm not going to say who it was. He's, mm. he's just a guy living a life now, but um, definitely have an opinion of him that never changed because you don't kick someone in the head when they're on the ground. Um, but so for me, that's what rugby is. It, there's e- even when you fucking hate the person you're playing against for maybe maybe they were disrespectful to your sister. I don't know. You, you just don't. You just don't. There's a line you don't cross. Um, um, and then sometimes um, one of my fondest memories of Robbie as a young, again, I've, I felt, I suppose a lot, a lot of blank spots as well. Thank you, concussions. But the we were playing uh, for the local team, Newport, we were playing Tip Town, and that was just two local teams, a uh, very moderate level of Robbie. Mm. And it was a very local there. It was a violent game. It, there was a lot of fighting. And um, I had cleared out a rook, and my, my arms were pinned under this guy. And uh, I saw this other player come up to me. My arms were pinned. I was on my knees. And I knew exactly what I was going to do. And I started laughing. And he caught my head and he kneed me in the face. And um, as hard as he could. And I just fell down. Obviously, there was a lot of blood. I just laughed and laughed and laughed. But you know you know why? Because I could see it coming. I knew what he was going to do because I probably would have done the same thing. And I just thought it was fucking hilarious. And, um, the, and that was the end of the fight. <laughs> because it, everybody thought maybe I was a little bit crazy. But... but uh, that was the memory because that's the only time that well that and one time on Montauk I guess, um, um, where there was real intent to do harm, but that was a an outlier of a game. You know, I'm talking about hundreds and thousands of games, right? So maybe not thousands. I could do the maths. Um, a lot of games, <laughs> hundreds of games. So, so, so violence. Um, what you're saying is violence is is a part of rugby, right? It's, it's intrinsic yeah. to rugby. That is kind of the point. But within the violence, there are rules, right? It, and there yeah. are rules that they're, they're, they're very often unspoken. And people yes. adhere to those rules and abide by them. And if you break the rules, you're almost outcast, not just from your opponents, but from your own team, right? You don't break yeah. the rules, right? Yeah. Think is, about like, I guess, think about like, the kind of military etiquette of the 1900s you know you know, it's like you know you walk in a straight line you don't shoot prisoners you don't, i mean it's all codified now but it used to be codified right so mm. it it's very much the unspoken and i i still think that you know i've i've gone on to watch you know i said i don't like i as a kid i didn't watch much sports but i've gone to watch a lot of sports a lot rugby and um you know you don't see the celebrations you don't see the the the, the exaggerated injuries or the dives and occasionally you do i remember one irish player doing a doing a, a simulated injury in a Heineken cup game um and he never did it again because he was ridiculed you know mm-hmm. because he was he clearly just went oh i'm, I'm hurt and you know and he that never happened again because you don't do that 
So, and, and I'm not saying like with mental health, like everything we do, it doesn't mean rugby's better than football or football's better than hurling or NFL is this. It, it just means that's what I think of that sport. That's all. I mean, for those that say you could, you can punch holes in this all day long. These are just my opinions based on my journey. Right. So, so yeah, rugby has that special place because of that, you know, I mean, I've met, you know, over recent years with rugby United, I've met a lot of established rugby players and, you know, so-called egos, and I haven't met, I've met lots of great people and very few egos, you know, mm-hmm. very, very few. I've met, you know, intelligent, uh, humble, dignified, sometimes crazy human beings, but very rarely have I met an ego, statistical person. I think it's, I think it's hard to have an ego when you're getting the shit kicked out of you <laughs> professionally. Um, um, would you say yes. in those with those other people that you've met, you, the values cross national divides, right? So it's the same in New Zealand, it's the same in France, it's the same in Australia, it's the same in England. These are shared yeah, values uh, did, globally. Did, I, I I trained with a rugby team in Colombia in September, um, and uh, you know I didn't speak English, and I'm oh, sorry, I spoke I speak English. <laughs> I don't I don't speak I don't speak Spanish. I speak yeah. very poor English. And um, and um, it was in um, Santa Marta and Northern Colombia. I, I reached out to him because I was there for a hiking trip and I trained with him. And we went back to a player's house after and we had a few drinks. Mm. And the values are the same. You know, working, work, being a working class Northern Colombia or, uh, or sort of Depor or, you know, my Ross, you know, the values are the same. Um uh, and that's it. That's good to see, and I'm sure you see it in soccer, soccer slash football as well. It's just you go to places like that. Um, I trained with a rugby team in Berlin a couple of years ago. Um, my German time was, you know, what I, not only speak German, but I can get a, I can get by. And same thing, you know. That you had a few drinks with the team after. All Germans, you know, great guys. Yeah, I could have swapped that team out for the team in Colombia. Easy peasy, you know. Um, uh, so yeah. It's definitely transcends um, national boundaries. How do yeah. you, so we, then you went to college when you were 17, 18 years of age, you went to Waterford, right? But you, you stopped playing rugby. Are you, did you try play for the college team? No, I went to, I went to one, one practice. I went to Munchens, which is a boarding school in Emmerich, which is a very rugby school. So I played an awful lot of rugby and like an awful lot, you know, you know, you play a club team, you play a, a school team so you play two games a week you train four days a week I when I was done at Munchens I was done at rugby it wasn't it wasn't fun you know it was just and I went down to that, that training session at Watford my first week there and it was a bunch of guys that took it very seriously and I'd been in a school for five years that took it very seriously and you know and it's like nah I'm good I'm just gonna I'm gonna enjoy you know it's not that you can't enjoy yourself and play rugby. Of course you can. I just, I didn't want to do it anymore. I didn't want to play. I didn't want to play rugby. I wanted to, I also went to an all boys boarding school for five years. <laughs> I wanted to not just be in an all boys situation. I wanted to be in a, in, a, in an all girls situation. So, um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, so, so I stepped away from rugby. And if I skipped college for a while, I was in New York for a couple of years, you know, working construction, drinking too much, making some friends, and one day, a guy in a job site told me, hey, you should go train with their local rugby team up in the Bronx. And I was like, oh, there's rugby in America. I didn't know. And I went to a practice. 
for a club called Lansdowne, a great, a great local club in, in the Bronx, Bronx slash Yonkers now. And I loved it because it was fun and it was shit and it was social and it was cigarettes on the field, you know, like literally smoking, from walking from rook to rook, lighting a cigarette kind of rugby. And, um, mm. and, I, and I felt, that's when I fell back in love with it because then it wasn't, you know, two training sessions a day or, you know, whatever. It was literally smoking cigarettes on the field and having a laugh and getting in a fight and going for beers after, you know. So, mm. uh, so I kind of, that was a new rugby for me and I fucking loved it. So, and um, we often only have, we play with that first season with, Rarely play with 13 players, we've been at 15, you know, or, you know, getting fights with each other, we get fights with the other team, or, but uh, we, uh, it was a lot of fun, a lot of fun. So that's, so I stopped at whatever time, 17, 18, when you go to college, and I picked it back up, maybe 23. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and I played fairly consistently. We had a year off every now and then for injuries or children, but like, instead of, I, I, I played in the spring. I didn't play in the fall and not out of anything. I just didn't have the time. Mm. Uh, I mean, when I said I have the time, I wanted to spend time with my kids. I, you know, I'm not going to, you know, the priorities change, right? Mm. As you get older, as you, as you know. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So tell me, um, I want to get to the Rugby United New York piece, right? But before that, you arrived in America at 20, was it 21 years of age? You made a decision yeah, just to leave 20- Ireland. Yeah. Tell me about that that decision and but Connor, that's happened. yeah well that's not um i didn't make a decision to leave ireland i made a decision to go to america for the summer you know that mm. this is not like this is not a uh, into the west or anything like that you know this mm. is like a uh, kid in college you know a mutual friend of ours fergie Bernard clark came out here the summer before he yes he, he had he had family here and he still has family here um and he had said when he came back to college, I think you were out in America the summer before as well. So you were also coming back saying you were in San Francisco. I was like, oh, it's great. It's fucking amazing. Da, da, da. And Fergie was like, it's amazing. Come on out. So I borrowed, borrowed money from the credit union, you know, and got the, the, the visa. Uh, you know, this is, listen, I have a girl in the other room here that's out in a student visa from, from Ireland. Uh, a very well-traveled road, you know. And this mm. is not the, um, you know, you talked about the 80s and maybe the 70s and, and before that, where it's economic necessity, you know, where it's like Dole or New York, you know, or Dole or, or Sydney, et cetera, et cetera. This is more, hey, there's this visa you get and there's a credit union that give you money and credit's a new concept to me and you at the time. Mm. Uh, so I'll come out for the summer. And all I can say then is like a lot of people that came out that summer that I know now still, it was, it was, it was busy. You know, you can get a job, you're getting paid cash in an envelope at the end of a week. You know, you just have to work hard. And so it's like, this is, I like this. I like, I like, I like that it's no one cares who you are, or what, you, what school you went to, or what Harlan team you played for. Or, and there was no clicks. I mean, there was clicks, there's county clicks, there still is. Um, but really, they didn't give a shit, you know, so you could just be yourself, whatever yourself is. Yourself could be go to mass every day kind of guy. You could be a drink points guy, whatever, whatever you are, you can be. And, um, and away from the a continuation of the craziness of college in some respects, because now you had money, you know, and mm-hmm. you both got, went very hungry in college, you know, uh, but also a, a little bit of the community that you maybe felt a chance to re, almost like a rebranding, you know, like a, you're, you're, you've got this new parish that's, it's like a parish from Ireland, you're surrounded by Irish people, but they're all from different parts of Ireland. So it's not that you don't fit in or you do fit in, because nobody fits in, you know. 
And it, it was, there was a comfort in that. And then there's the, sorry, I'm jumping around here, but the work thing, mm. it was very apparent very quickly. There was no limits to how good you could be in America because there is no, there's no ceiling. There literally, there literally is no ceiling here. It's, a, it's an amazing country for that. And so um, what do you mean by that, James? Well, I mean, I, 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 you know, you said that you're here, I'm here because of a rugby team, but like, I, there's guys I know that built 100, 200, 300, 500 million dollar companies that didn't go to college, you know? So it, it's, if you can be, it, it sounds so cliche, but you can be whatever the fuck you want to be, you know, if it's, if it's, um, I'm not saying you could be successful. You could be an actor, and as you know how hard that is, and I appreciate how hard that is as well. Or you can open a construction company and you do really well, and then you can fail. You can, you can open several bars and be great, and then COVID hits. You know, I mean, you can do all these things, and there's there's typical pathways for the Irish of my our generation. This is before uh, I'm talking about people that came out here not to use their college degree, but to the college degree got them here, but they came out to to work in hospitality mm. or construction or so on. And it doesn't mean you're going to win all the time, but you can, the door is always open, you know, and, and America, the America that I know, there's no shame in failure. And that's something, once again, I don't jump around, but it's something that was apparent immediately, but it takes you a long time to learn it, to really believe it. Like I felt shame, I felt ashamed in failure or success in Ireland. And this may be all in my head. I mean, I was neither a failure or a success because I was young. But in America, if you fail, and I failed, I failed, my first company failed uh, badly. And uh, and, and Roby actually got me out of it uh, in a very roundabout way. And um, it, 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 a, a, a bad injury gave me the excuse not to finish a project that I'd already fucked up. And uh, the lady whose store I was supposed to build, um, she came to see me in hospital and she was super nice. And she was like, oh my God. I was like, I'm really sorry, but I've like, you know, I failed you. She said, no, this is amazing. You've learned, you want to learn so much from this. Here's your money. And I'm like, I do what? I want the money. You're, I did a terrible job. Your store's not open. And her perspective was, okay, she, she said, I got money. I'll, I'll find, I'll find someone else. Don't worry about it. You're, you're in hospital. Uh, but also you're going to learn so much from failure. Like big smiley face. Maybe she was just like, yes, this injury's got this fucker away from me. But uh but you know, the, the genuinely, there is a a thing about failure. I I feel that is, you know, like to jump to the rugby, rugby United, and I think a lot of guys and girls will say this. Before we go there, right? Here's what I, here's here's the, the point. It seems it seems to be there's less of a cost to failure in the United States, yeah. or even it's like a badge of honor. Like if, if you fail yeah. in Ireland, bankruptcy is forever. It's not just for, 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 for three years. You are in serious trouble. If you fail in Europe, there's a social cost. But it's as if, if you fail in the United States, you have people bringing you, you know, chocolates to your hospital bed. In some, yeah, in some respects, like the, the, the biggest key to success is accepting failure. You know, that sounds so cliche. And I'm sure I pulled that off a book somewhere. It's not definitely not my, definitely not original words, but it's 100% true. You go into this knowing that you're going to lose everything, but you're going to do everything you can to win everything, and you're okay with both, both results. That frees you up to an unimaginable degree, you know. Mm. And accepting failure, you know, with kids are involved or a partner, or 
maybe a mortgage to pay. It's, it sounds so easy for me to say accept failure, but if you have all these things where failure means you won't pay your mortgage, that your kids, you you will struggle to buy them the clothes going to school or you know what all those different things. So it's easy for me to say that, but you really have to accept failure to be successful, in my opinion. And that you know I learned that by being, and it took that's what I meant to say. It took me, I knew it, but to really absorb it, to really suck it in. It took all those years. You know, all those years, and um, you know, it's 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 liberating. You know, it, and, it, and not in a way that like it, it's not to say you're okay with failure. That's a completely different conversation, a hundred percent different conversation. This is up here and in here. If I fail, I can still hold my head up. I can still look at, look look people in the eye. I can still shake hands. There's no shame. There's no yeah, etc. There's no cloud over you. There's no flag following you around saying you're a fucking failure there is a fucking tried yeah what is it uh better to do and die than to never do it all yeah never do it all yeah yeah well wasn't it churchill that said um failure is a uh, success is about stumbling from one failure to another without losing enthusiasm right so <laughs> yeah, that's a good it's one a, yeah. it's about you you keep going and you you repeat and you repeat and repeat and you don't get downheartened and then bang you hit it you, you knock it out of the park, yeah. as the Americans say, and then and yeah. then that's what it's about. So, you had a a bunch of failures at the start. So you go to the United States, right? You land on in the United States. But how much money did you have in your pocket when you went to the United? I know States? exactly how much I had because I thought I had loads of money at three hundred dollars. I thought mm-hmm. that was loads of money. And um, you know, Connor, this is. This is before the internet, and we're sounding really old. It's not that long ago. It's like 19, 1999, for fuck's sake. Um, you don't think about that kind of, you know, like I didn't think I was going to America for a long term. I didn't even read a book on New York. You know, I got on the plane, got off the plane. Why New York? Why? What? Why New York? Like there's 50 states. Why did you that's where, that's where That's where our friend Fergal was. Okay. So, so there was, you know, I had a, a point of contact. And, yeah. you know, I was sure that, like, uh, you know, I'd get a job uh, work in construction. I had no experience, but I mean, I grew up on a farm, so I guess that's not true. You grow up on a farm, you have somewhat experience in construction. You don't have to, mm. you know, have to, you know, have to lift things. <laughs> you can lift heavy things. <laughs> that was my qualification. <laughs> um, so, yeah, three hundred dollars, um, and I'm sure, Connor. I'm sure, even today. I know the visas have a lot more rules around them now, and you have to have X amount of money in your bank. But I'm sure, I'm sure there's kids coming here with less, you know. So, mm-hmm. uh, and when we're talking about Irish, and I mean Jesus Christ, I mean we are a tiny, tiny drop in the ocean of this country, and you know, it's um, you know, I've worked with Albanians and Me- Mexicans and Chileans and Brazilians that came here owing thousands of dollars to smugglers and so on. So, uh, I think. Being Irish, you know, an accent, white, Western, you know, somewhat um, mythologized, mm. you know, you know, um, uh, by John Wayne and all these actors over the years, you know, it's um, oh, I mean, you got such a leg up, you know, you got such a, like there's more opportunity for me coming to New York, knowing no one, growing up in the in the hills of Tipperary. Than there is if I came out of the East New York in Brooklyn, a hundred like a hundred percent, and I, that's something I had to learn as well. It's a it's an amazing, brilliant city and an amazing, brilliant country, but it's also completely fucked up, you know. So I could I'm in Brooklyn right now, you know, I'm in Greenfield, which is the north, 
I go all the way down south or south south and east, which is Brownsville, where Mike Tyson's from, and um, places like that. And those kids down there, they uh, they have no opportunities. You know, they couldn't come into New York. Uh, they hopped the subway, hopped the fare, got in for free. They had no opportunity. If they got ten thousand dollars and walked into New York City, they have no opportunity. I mean, it's not the same. Sorry, once again, not giving you all the positives here, but um, context is important. You know, it's a big city, but being Irish, having the Irish community, you know, where you just literally have to say, walk into a bar and say, do you do you have a job? And they'll say, I don't have a job, but. Jimmy's aunts, brothers, cousins, uncles, nephews, dogs, friends, dad has a job painting. He'll pick you up tomorrow. Mm. You, you, you know, it's literally, mm. that's how fucking easy it was. And still somewhat is, you know, there's still that uh, thing, you know, you get where you play it forwards, you know, like strangers, a stranger gave me my first job. It was a, a sprinkler system. It's like fire suppression. Uh, worked for 18 hours straight, went on to beer after, missed work the next day, I got fired, you know. My next job was painting. This guy Fergal gave me a job. Didn't know him. Gave me a job. Went to paint Richard Gere's house. Didn't know how to paint. Used too much sandpaper. Didn't meet the Dalai Lama, but got fired. Um, you know, like did you meet Richard Gere? I did meet Richard Gere. A fucking nice man, too. Really, really nice man. Um, uh, him and the Dalai Lama are there at the same time. And a very nice guy. Uh, he, are you he serious? Yeah, very, very nice guys. Could use his pool at lunchtime. Yeah, these lemonade brought out for us, towels. It was, a, it was a, that was a hot summer. It was a very hot summer, 110 degrees, so 45 degrees almost every day. So, yeah, very, very nice guy. Uh, and I've worked with, I've worked for, you know, I'm just, just I'm, the, I'm the, the hired help, right? Which is mm-hmm. fine. And I'm 100% okay with that. But I've been the hired help for a lot of known people. And most mm-hmm. of them are fucking assholes. So, <laughs> when you meet someone that's genuinely really fucking nice and the cameras aren't there and no one's writing nothing in the papers, it's actually unusual, you know. It's actually an outlier. So, uh, uh, yeah. Do you think America has made uh, positive steps in terms of racial equality, inclusivity? Do, do you see, in terms of Yonkers, in terms of, you know, the what you touch? It's so it's it's it it hasn't it hasn't. I tell you what. I tell you what. I was in upstate New York yesterday. You know, 140 miles north of New York City. You know, mm-hmm. and um. It's in Albany. Albany is a, you know, the Albany area's got a million people. It's, just, you know, it's not, the area itself is not that much smaller than Dublin, I guess, or half the size of Dublin. So not, it's not on the boondocks. I get an Uber from the train station to the, the, the job site I was going to, and I'm talking to the Uber driver, and he's talking about, we get talking about the news, and he said something about New York City and, and drugs and violence, and I was like, I lived in New York for, 20 something years and I've been in Brooklyn for most of it and it's as safe as any place. I don't lock my door, blah, blah, blah. Um, and he got, and I just talked about how the news gives you a perception of things that's very dramatic. And new news is there to sell its news. It's easy to sell hate. And he talks, he says to me, he said, yeah, I had the, I had an African-American woman in my car the other day and she did not talk like what I taught an African-American woman to talk like. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, on Fox News, they said this, this, and this. And this woman was, um, she spoke better English than me. And I, I was like, like, this was so fucked up. You know what I mean? This mm-hmm. is like, his racism is so bad that he's surprised that, you know, God, it's, it, it, and that's where it is. It's just, it's so sensationalized, you know. Uh, you know, there was a kid, kid on the rugby team, um, the New York Rugby United New York 
Connor, who who is a black uh, uh, black uh, kid from from the UK, so mm-hmm. African not African American, but you know, um, and he was very pro Black Lives Matter, and, and I understand that, and I'm not saying as I'm as am I, I guess I am, but he didn't understand that the police department in New York City is I, at least fifty percent not white. So I brought him to an event in his neighborhood in Brooklyn where it was Trey Belk, a rugby player from Queens. He's about six foot five, African-American, one of the nice guys you'd ever meet. Mm. And in, in his neighborhood, in that precinct, it's majority African-American police officers. And he didn't understand that. He lives in that community, but he's watching news that's biased towards white, white cops are going to kill you. Not understanding that his community, most of the cops are actually African-American. And I'm not going to kill you. You know, it's just these are bad examples and clumsy, klutzy examples where I'm probably saying the wrong thing. We were leaning on our news sources and our news sources are not news. They're sensationalism. They're not they're media, not news. Right. So and if that's as that gets worse and worse, racism is getting worse and worse on all sides. You know, we're labeling we're casting broad strokes about things and we're making it harder and harder for people to break through. And uh, it's still much the case is. Like for a simple thing. I was illegal here for a few years. I don't know if I can say that. Fuck it, I can say that. And um, and uh, I there was a, a guy called Fernando that trained me to be a carpenter. He's still probably the best carpenter I ever met. Like a, a cabinet maker, artisan kind of guy, right? Mexican, middle class Mexican kid. You know, wouldn't fit wouldn't fit your typical stereotype of what the news media would put out there as a Mexican. And we would do jobs, and he's teaching me. And the in one case, uh. A, a famous, somewhat famous liberal law and order actor whose job was apparently run event wouldn't talk to Fernando because Fernando is illegal. But you would talk to me because I'm undocumented. Now, the only difference between me and Fernando was outside of he's much better character or probably a better human and definitely better educated is the color of her skin and her nationality. Right? So, but in th- this guy's way of justifying his behavior was that Fernando's illegal, like he's illegal, should not be here. I'm undocumented, which infers that I lost a piece of paper, you know, misfiled a form. We're both the exact same status, but, you know, his inherent racism is more comfortable to label us differently that way. Very, It's a subtle use of language, but it's it, it was an eye-opener for me because this is a guy that was was going on Bill Maher, you know, and liberal this, liberal that. He was, he was, he was, he was about... Um, as liberal as Sean Hannity behind the scenes, you know. So, um, so yeah. So the racism liberal, is there. but perhaps it's, it's, la- lacking in empathy, or yeah, yeah. I think he, yeah, Clubus, perhaps lacking, mm. not aware as we all are. I think not aware of your own biases. Mm. I think that's what's the hard part. I think we just don't know. We we don't. I, I like Connor. I've had. I'm trying to grow, you know, I've had the rugby, I've had mental health issues over the years that I'm dealing with. And part of me, my growth is like, where, what, what am I, I do this thing, I found, I only discovered recently, I've been thinking about it all my, all my life. I shit on people. What I mean is like, you say, let's say we're talking, oh yeah, how you doing Connor? I'm doing good, oh yeah. And you say something about, say, make, make my governance. And I, I Often, I don't even know I do it. I'd say something derogatory about me. I did not make him, if he's listening, make him sure you're lovely. I'm not, it's not, I'm just thinking of a mutual guy, right? Mm. And I would say something negative. And apparently, I asked around, apparently I do that a lot. And there's no need for it. There's no upside. There's no, you know, there's zero upside of me saying something negative about someone that I don't even know. 
and there's you know not just not to not not saying that it's just not it's it's uncalled for it's unnecessary it's i didn't even it's like this tourette's thing so i've I've caught it finally after 34 fucking years and I've mostly stopped it, but I do ask people around me to call me out and I do it because I don't even know I'm doing it. I'm being a dick. Where being a dick is completely uncalled for. So I'm, I'm, I'm saying that it's a small example of like what we, I think we all do to some level. Mm. We just don't even know we're doing it, you know? So, so, uh, like I don't think you meet guys and, and girls, good folks, women, men, uh, the, uh, their beliefs are based on the information they have at hand or if they select the information they don't think they're racist I I, I suspect most people that go around thinking they're racist or sexist or abusive or bullies you know it's not we don't wear wear down our sleeves and we don't often know we're doing it I think um, I don't know how to fix it but have you heard of unconscious bias training the unconscious bias, for sure. We all have that. Uh, and uh, it, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how to fix it. I think. Um, uh, and it's getting worse, you know, and I, I could talk about. Empathy, do you think, do you think you know? America is getting, can you see signs of improvement or is it regressing? Um, I think. uh It's not that simple. I think America, America is, that's like saying, making a blanket statement of the EU because you know, the EU, the same population basically these days, right? So you could say, yeah, it's it's good here, but not good there. I think it's the, the uh, 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 my, my concern is overall, the concern for my daughters is the, is the, um, the way that we, as a society, I think in America and, and my limited experience in Ireland, England, and so on, I've, I've, I've seen it as well, is that how we interact with each other now is, is through our devices. Me too. I'm not saying, let's do as I say, not as I do. Um, how we interact is through our devices. So instant messaging, WhatsApp, SMS, all the Twitter, Google, all the fucking platforms. And what we're missing there is the human connection. So, so if in my, in my, business the, outside of the rugby the, the one that actually makes me money which is construction in, in new york and real estate is is i tell people that work for me yeah you know if you got to call the person you got to get a guy in the phone girl on the phone talk to him and if you can do a meeting do a meeting make eye contact you know i went 140 miles yesterday to meet one guy for five minutes and came 140 miles back that was that five minute meeting was worth a week's trip i could have you know, it, it was just worth it because eye contact, shaking hands, we had a disagreement about a project he's doing, a building that I own. Um, and it's the kind of disagreement that could go kaboom or just go away mm. based on eye contact and a little bit of empathy and a shaking hands and building building of trust. I could easily have just gone keyboard warrior on that and emailed angry, made loads of threats, all this stuff. And he, and he could have done the same because then it escalates. That's what happens when you take away the human contact, right? So I, I think that we are taking away human contact at every level. And, uh, and I think that's the bigger concern for me. Because if I'm not talking to that guy, Dan, Dan, Dan in this case, looking at that, we're, I'm not saying it wasn't a pleasant conversation. We both had disagreements. The disagreements didn't go away, but we had to look each other in the eye and see human beings rather than a line of, line of text. 
and that changes that does change it you know um that's the empathy the emotion it's important and i you know well there's no context in in text and there's no context over machines i mean even when we're talking now we're being extra polite because we're trying to give each other space. If we were sitting beside each other, we'd probably be talking over each other and so on and so forth. Like there's a different yeah. way of, it's a different way of communicating. But you were wise yeah. enough to know that the only way to solve and de-escalate was to drive the 140 miles, right? So yeah. obviously this argument was developing over phones in technology. And you realized, okay, to solve this, it's face-to-face, I'll drive the 140 yeah. miles. Um, yeah. You say you're worried about your daughters not having that connection, not understanding yeah, I mean, we, the connection. Yeah, I mean, it's it's slipping. And, you know, I understand also that we all kind of turn into our parents and, like, in my day, it was better. Or, but I think we're, we, I, just, I don't know, our parents probably said this as well. I think, I think we are at a tipping point. I think we are at a point where it's like people hide behind those platforms and lose the ability. And I say this, I think this is very important as an Irish person. For Irish people, we're we're supposed to be. I thought we are storytellers. We talk a lot. We we do sometimes occasionally listen, but we talk a lot, and that's part of who we are. And now I see it. I see kids losing that ability. You know, it's not. I'll say when I was a kid, I wasn't a good talker. I was very shy and awkward. And once again, going back to upbringing and my dad and the community and stuff like that. That, but. That's who we are. And once we take that away and we start hiding behind our devices and no, just literally talking to people and hearing their stories. You know, I think we're fucked as a society because that's that's how you build it. In, in my opinion, that's how you build empathy. You build empathy by empathizing, right? By hearing their story. You know, mm. you know, you know. You told me the story about uh, um, the Vikings. That's that's a great story. Not a, not a happy story for you, but a great story. It puts mm. light on on stuff. You know what I mean? And um, it's more than just a story. It's context. It's part of your journey. And part of, part of a journey could be your dog just died. Or part of your journey could be you're having a tough time in your marriage. Or part of your journey could be uh, whatever it is. Whatever got you to that point at that place at that day. That's your journey. And mm. you can't get that across in the fucking email, you know, or mm. an Instagram post. And, and you start losing empathy. You start making that, you're losing that human connection. You know, the, that's a dark road. In, in my opinion, that's a dark road. Um, so a dark and lonely road. Um, so I hope for my daughter's sake and that we, you know, we tell stories. I encourage them to write stories, um, to, you know, to do improv and dance and enjoy. And just, we try, we all try, you know, I mean, you try with your child as well. So it's like, um, but, uh, that uh, passive aggressiveness behind the, behind devices is uh, and lack of empathy is, uh, is, uh, is a problem, and that's what's driving this racism and this hate, this fucking virtual about you know fat white men screaming at women because they can't do what they want with their own vaginas, or or you know uh, people telling people a thousand miles away who who they can't have sex with and um, what you know what they can do and what they can't do. I mean it's outside of the basic principle of do no harm to yourself or others, I, I don't see why we should be concerned mm. about any of that stuff. Like, where does this, all this hate and virtual come from? Um, so, Is it being fueled by technology? That's what I wondered. Perhaps the platforms are adding 
the, the methodology that we're communicating with is actually exacerbated because what you have with a, with a Facebook or an Instagram or a, a technology an, a instant messenger is you have the cloak of anonymity potentially, right? So you can lash out and behave in a different way online anonymously, or at least as a, there's a barrier. So 30 years ago, if you wanted to insult somebody, you would probably have to stand in front of them and face the threat of physical violence, right? But now you can insult somebody from 5,000 miles away across a platform, and you know they're going to be wounded, equally as wounded. So the, the physical thing isn't there anymore. Um, so what, what I wanted to ask you about, right, so let, getting back, you've got $300 in your pocket, you're in New York, and you start on your construction journey, right? Yeah. What? How did how did you find your first few jobs? Right. What? what how did you settle on a particular career path? I think um, uh, it took me a while to find. Took me a while to find Fergie, Fergie, because we didn't have cell phones, and he wasn't in the apartment. He said he was there. Um, so you arrived in New York. You were you were supposed to meet Fergal, a mutual friend of ours, at an apartment. You had three hundred dollars in your pocket. You arrived at the apartment. He's not there. No, two other guys are there. And they let me stay. The Irish okay. guys. So on the, on the Upper East Side. And then they sent me up to, or I think Farewell, they found him. He came down and got me the next day. I, I think it's a bit hazy. So a lot of drinking done back in those days. But um, so he ended up in a, in a flat in, in, in Yonkers, which is just above Bronx with uh, Fergal and a couple other guys, Blair and Tommy. Mm. And um, they had just moved in. That's why I missed him. They had no furniture. It's a big, big flat, three bedroom. So me and this girl Kira stayed there. We found an old sofa on the street. We dragged it into the apartment. We slept on the sofa together for a while, and um, and uh, and then one of those guys got me a job at a sprinkler company. I said that we worked eighteen hours straight, and um, I came back and we went out, and then I missed the lift the next morning. You know, which was only three hours later. So, so um, and then I got a job with a painter. Had that for a week. Richard Gears has got a job with it. But did you yeah, do Richard Gears house, house during during that week? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't. I mean, the guys were there for a while after probably fixing fixing my shit. But um, um, and then um, and then I got a job with this guy Pete, and Pete was a carpet, a small construction company. He renovated. He was just him. Um, we renovated apartments in the city, and I worked with him. And he was a good teacher, and he was a good guy. And um, I'm sure he still is a good guy. I'm sure he still is a good teacher. He's, and Pete is still amongst us. And um, and uh, yeah, and he he taught me a lot. And then he, I transferred from him to another. Literally asked him to let me leave to go to another company, and he did. Uh, to work upstate for a couple of years, kept on learning. You know, so then you're in it. Then you're in the community. Then you get. Then you have friends. You know, people. Now you have you, a career. Now you have a career. Yeah. And it was it, it, a few things. Was like working with Pete, especially. It was like, it's just hard work. It's like, he didn't hire me to make cabinetry or to, you know, paint the Mona Lisa. He hired me to work hard. And I, I liked that, you know, being a farmer, I guess. I liked that. It was very clear cut. You know, there was no ambiguity about it. And, uh, and you could, I could really enjoy that part of it. But also, as he told me to be a carpenter, I realized I wasn't particularly good. I mean, that's in my opinion. And, um, and you could look at the pathway of labor or carpenter, super project manager, so on and so forth. And I was like, I could, I could go that road. 
without college. I could just do this, do the program, do the steps. And uh, when I told my mom I was going to stay out here and not go back to college to, to do that extra year, she wasn't happy. Um, she wasn't happy at all. Um, but I said, listen, it's, I see it's a, a serious here. decision. So you're turning your back on college to stay and go on this construction path, right? Yeah. It didn't feel like a serious, I don't think it, you know, when you're young, you don't think of things like that. You think of like, hey, this is, college was, so we were, we were in college together. We weren't in the same courses. We were in college together. That's how we know each other. College was a lot of fun. Mm. And I, I wouldn't change it. You know, I have a piece of paper somewhere that says I've got a certificate in something. And it was a part of my life and I don't regret it. And, you know, I, I, I may well go back to college at some point, but, but I think my pathway, my mentality, my lack of attention, my inability to pay attention, lack of focus in a classroom environment, I, I think I was better suited to this journey. And, um, I think that's a mistake that happens, a mistake that's put forced upon us. Um, it's like everybody goes to college. That's what we do now. We're all, we all want to be middle class. Everybody go to college. You know, it's, that's too, you know, in all the, of all the technology and all the advances we've made, we still treat people like they are pegs that we have to put in holes, you know, instead of being like, hey, you're a machine, a very complex, intricate machine. Maybe we should find out where this machine will better work. You know, we wouldn't take a machine that assembles cars and put it in the milking powder to milk cows. Mm. You know, it would do a very bad job of milking cows. And then we'd be like, that machine's a failure. Mm. Let's destroy all those machines. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, or we are, we are the best and the worst resource around, right? We're adaptable, we're malleable, we're, we learn on the job, we, we're bipedal and all this kind of stuff. But we, we don't treat it like that. You know, we're not going to treat ourselves like that. And um, anyway, I can go on about education for five hours. So, I, I so let's let's go back. So you st you're you're rising up through the ranks. So you're doing it for two. You're doing carpentry for two years, and then you get promoted. Yeah, no, you, you move around, you get promoted. I I I like to say I failed up a lot. Like I was an okay carpenter, but I was better suited as a job running carpenters because they were better than me, and I could do the organizing, and then uh, you, you move up, you move over, you kind of follow the work a little bit. And then, um, uh, yeah, then I became a project manager, uh, for, not for a, a large, for a small uh, mill working uh, company, architectural woodwork. Mm -hmm. And I, I enjoyed that. Um, and when that, when that went away at the recession, I went that's to medical serious, Sorry, James, that's a serious jump, managing a project. Right, managing know, like a construction project. No, I mean, I mean that, those are just middle work projects. It's like, um, like you're putting a pantry. Okay, say, yeah. Trip trip advisor. You know, you're you're doing their pantry and their break room or something like that. You know, you're putting in some lockers and the kitchen cabinets. You know what I mean? You're, then you go to medical constructions where I became a, re a real like a general project manager. And this is a pathway thousands take here. Here, it's not a. This is not a outlying and it's a good pathway it's a pathway that people should legally do all the time i mean uh mm -hmm. it's 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 a great way to learn on the job and you can pick your level you know you can mm -hmm. say hey i've gone up to here i'm not comfortable here you know running a five million dollar job or a five 
$50 million job or a $5,000 job. I'm not comfortable here. I want to be back here where I'm not running the job, but I'm assisting the person running the job. Mm. You don't have to go to four years of college to then go and do that and then realize I don't like it. Mm. You can literally learn on the fly. You know, you can, I send the guys that I have now, and it's a, it's a small company, a very good company, of course, I would say that, um, to do Excel courses, to do um, organizational courses, to, to learn software. You can do all of that at night and then practice it during the day. So, mm. and once again, not blanket statements, just I think that you can find your level. And so, yeah, so you get to run in jobs for healthcare with a guy from Mead, with a big company, still has a big company, a very good company to work for. And then, um, and then I set up my own company, which once again, it's very common. Uh, so how long were you uh, working for other people before you set up your own company? How many years? 13 years. So you had, you felt comfortable that you had the financial space, if you like, you had the, the liquid to be able to go out on your own. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't actually about the money. Um, it, it was more about the, it's the next step. Mm. The next step for me is I've learned as much as I can, mm. as much as I, as I want to learn, not as much as I can, as much as I want to learn, I want to be my own boss. Mm. Um, like it was always, what's the next step? I'm a laborer. I want to be a super, you know, I want to be a carpenter. I'm a carpenter. I want to be a supervisor. So on. So next step, next step. It was always next step for me. Mm. Um, and I'm in the, and that next step continues in that, in that time, in that timeline, in that pathway, the next step is continuing. And mm. uh, it was, I wanted to be my own boss, um, bang, bang my own drum. And I've done that now, Jesus, um, 11, 12, 13 years. So 12, uh, 12 years. <laughs> 10 years a long ten time years. basically a long ten, 10 or 11 years mm. and and um and, and and that's that's a natural progression you know and then over the last 10 years has been okay build this company and what i found when i built a company is that unlike my contemporaries you know built fantastic companies in construction the, you, you get big and i just got unhappy um um, working around the clock, um, drinking too much because you have to network, mm. um, you know, massive uh, payroll. I'm just I just I, didn't, I wasn't happy. Didn't enjoy it. Um, mm. So it took a lot for me to realize that. It took a, a divorce and a few other things to realize that happiness is not that's not my pathway to happiness. Um, and then there's also a little bit of boredom. Um, I tend to get bored very easily. Um, yeah, and then there's the uh, the rugby team, you know. So, which so you were running. So let's get into the rugby United New York, right? So you were managing your you're running your own company at this stage. You're in New York. You're working for yourself. You've set up your own construction company. You're doing projects. Everything is going great. Maybe you're a little bit bored, and then Rugby United New York comes along. How did that happen? Um, so I'd been going to these, uh, dinners, uh, yearly dinners called Captain's Knock. I, it's just a rugby dinner where some rugby legends come out and they tell some jokes and you all laugh and we drink too much. And, uh, I met a guy, a regular, so I became a regular at that once a year thing. Mm. And there's a guy called John King, who, who used to come to that as well. And English guy, played for London Irish many years ago, very nice guy. And I guess over a few of these events, we talked about rugby in America and professional rugby in America. And he reached out to me one day out of the blue and he said, you know, James, that thing you were talking about professional rugby in America. And I was like, 
yeah, <laughs> what? And he's like, well, uh, um, uh, I can't remember why. Well, he's now the United Rugby Championship. But I, oh God knows what it was called back in 2017. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they want to put a team in America, and I think you're the guy to do it. And introduce my friend Paul Wallace and Marin and I. And I was like, sure, well, fuck it, why not? Just introduce me. So I talked to Paul, and he had a plan. I flew him out to New York. We met with people in the community. We threw an event with three beers. We got all the people out and uh, kicked the tires. And we went we, we, a little bit that way down the road to applying for a, a, what's what's called the URC now. It's, I can't remember what it's called. And for applying for a license to put a team in New York to play in the European competition. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I had two Irish kids, Rebecca and uh, Mark, had just started for me as interns and um literally that week so i put them on on this uh, data data collection so they, they did a they put a whole paper together smart kids and it was a good paper the numbers were good you know, participation level uh, comps receipts states facilities weather all, all the stuff you would look at if you were doing a sports team in new york weather being one of the bigger ones and stadium mm. um and the numbers were great but there was some um, there was a lot of ambiguity around what uh, Martin and I, uh, the CEO, the, the current CEO of NCO at the time, was, was offering and where the chips were going to fall. We knew that there was another team group of investors bidding for another team, either in DC or Toronto. And there, was, there wasn't a lot of clarity about what was going on. And, and you know, I put a group together. Uh, we'd found a facility. Uh, tentatively found a facility at Fordham, Fordham College in the Bronx. We'd done all the research, all the legwork, and I just wasn't very comfortable around around what the next steps were, and I couldn't get any clarity from Martin or from Paul. So right before we were supposed to fly to Scotland and present at Edinburgh, in Edinburgh for this for this this um, expansion team, um, I pulled the plug, and I know I really pissed off Paul Wallace, and I really pissed off Martin and I. Um, but I, I can, t- you know, respect now. I can tell you that, I, I, you know, but I, then Marin and I, I think, is is great. He was great then. I thought he was great then. He's great now because he came into that rugby organization and said, "We got to do something different because we're not. It's not working." You know, and he tried. He tried the American thing. It didn't work. I, I don't think it was just because of me, but it meant that he was a good leader because he wasn't sitting around. He was going to try things. He was going to push things, and um, so that so it, I didn't feel very good about. Pulling the plug, I didn't feel very good about about you know, you know. I know Paul definitely had you know. You envision a life. You envision it's like oh, we're going to do this team in New York, and I'm going to be involved at the sea level or something like that. And, and I'm sure it was all laid out that way, but it was the wrong, it was the wrong call, and I don't. It was the wrong idea um, for them to do that, and I wasn't. I decided not to finance it. Um, so I did that, and. Um, uh, I pulled a grenade on that thing, and then um, about a week later, um, I got in touch with MLR um, and heard about him during that process and talked to uh, a guy called Dean House. And Dean House, when I talked to him, he was the commissioner of Major League Rugby at the time, and he had a lot of experience in American sports um, and ownership and uh, like um, tier one, like uh, American sports, uh, NHL, and stuff like that. And he said, I can guarantee you're going to lose an awful lot of money. 
you may, if we're lucky, sell, get some equity, something like that. But he just said, these, these are the challenges, facility, fans, uh, insurance, um, marketing, you know, franchising. He, he just, he, and the first phone call listed all the negative. And I was like, I like this guy. He's not, there's no bullshit here. He's, he's actually going overly cautious and uh, because it wasn't like it's a pot of gold and you're going to be so rich. It was the opposite. And I was like, I like this guy a lot. And he, him and uh, his deputy commissioner flew out to New York and met with me. And I, I, we'd already done most of the research. So we, we knew where we stood in New York. And we negotiated for six months, um, maybe longer, to, to get into the, that league. And there was nuances around. Uh, so there was no, there was no New York team at this stage? There was no... There's no East Coast team. No, no East, Coast East Coast team. It's all West Coast. So that was a big thing. There was um, one of the major concerns was there was no East Coast team. So I thought mm. from talking and I talked to everybody I could get a hold of um, and I got some great advice and from lots of different people um, from, and lots of different sports. Um, the, you needed East Coast rivalries. Um, so I reached out to the rugby network that I was building very quickly at that point and um, we had a uh, a meeting in New York uh, with, with people from Toronto, people from Boston, Columbus, Ohio, New York, and Chicago. Now, I should say the people in Boston because there was uh, one of the there was a funeral at that same day. It was obviously unexpected, so the people from Boston didn't actually make it down. But Ch Chicago, Toronto, New York, and Columbus, Ohio were there, and the meeting was in the conference room in Columbus Circle. And the meeting was, "Hey, hi, James Kennedy. I'm thinking about doing this thing. Well, I won't do it without you guys." Uh, who will do it with me or this is our market share 150 million people do we do our own thing because then we have competing leagues and that could be really good for media or do we just go back to Marin and I and say we're really sorry that was into your league um, or do we do nothing so we, we are all you know, our individual groups are strangers to each other so it was interesting it was an interesting dynamic because you're you're reaching out to cities and finding people that are inviting to your city and saying hey I don't know you but uh what do you think about this? Mm. And the Toronto guy, Mark Winokur, who now is part owner and runs the Toronto MLR team, um, he um, so clearly he said yes, let's do it, let's go to MLR, and uh, we shook hands on it. Uh, Toronto, uh, Chicago said yeah, we'll try, and um, uh, Columbus uh, said that we'll do our best as well, and they, they, the rest of them said they're the best, but Toronto was like, I can't handshake, we'll do it. So so once Toronto got their bid together, and uh, we. I think we co no, we didn't we didn't co-apply because we were laying at slightly different times, but we both went to the MLR and said listen, we'll go in. Um uh, and we did. We both joined and we played um Toronto wasn't our first game. Um it was our first actually coincidentally, it was our first home game when we did actually but we played an exhibition, we called an exhibition season. We wanted to test the water on jerseys and branding and ticket sales and sponsorship. And um, yeah, unfortunately, that, that Boston group didn't quite make it to the table. The, the Columbus, the Chicago group fell away as well. The, the investors didn't get on. And Columbus, Ohio, they got to the table with an application. Uh, it's like Tom Rooney, but it never quite followed through. Um, so, yeah, so that was it. We, we, we played an exhibition game against the Boston team. We sold out Gaelic Park in the Bronx. It was a great night, great weather. We won 50 to zip, you know. So it's like this, this, thing, this thing might work, you know. Um, but you know, there's but it did work, it, it's a lot of work, it, it did. did, yeah, it did. The team's still there and it's got great owners now. And and um, 
it's good. But I think they won the championship. I don't think I know they won the championship last year. So, and they're adding. There's a Chicago team being added this season. So mm. this season, which would be in February. So this this next season, which is next year. So they're growing. And, and so you you I mean you put this project together, right? It's 2018, and you start. Within a year, you're signing Ben Foden and Matthew Bastro. Or maybe two years. How does yeah. how does how does that well, happen? Well, Ford's so Ford's reached out. I mean, this, this, this is you know, I early in this conversation where I'm ridiculing and bashing social media, and then now I'm going to say, well, you know, thanks to social media, everybody's contactable. Mm. I am to you, you are to me. So Ford's reached out. Through, I think initially through Alex Corbacero, who I'd reached out to because he's a personality out here in he's a he's a British and Irish line. He's young. Um, and he was doing TV stuff over here for rugby. So I reached out to him on social media. He'd gotten back to me. Um, his grandparents live in Queens. I was living in Queens at the time. He came around, you know, we had a burger, we shot the shit, said, let's work together. Really, really nice guy. And then Folds reached out to him because they did, they both played together at Northampton. And, um, so, and they played for England together. So Folds reached out to him. He flipped Folds on to me. Ben flew out and I, <laughs> Ben flew out, and I, I am. Um, first time he flew out. What's it? I think the first time he came out, came out on his own, and he stayed with me. I think. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he came out on his own. Yeah, he did. I know. I, and um, so I, I said, I'll. Uh, um, I think I said, uh, Corbs will show you around. He'll show you the venue. He'll show you where we're going to train. He'll show you everything. The, the joke was we didn't have anything. So Corbs took him to a field in the Bronx and showed him nothing. So this is what we got. We got nothing. <laughs> so <laughs> if you want to play for us, we'll, we'll, we'll train outside in the middle of the winter. We won't have showers. Uh, we haven't selected coaches yet. We'll likely be these coaches. It's a slightly different caliber. Not and great guys. I know I'm not saying they're great guys. Just, you know, it doesn't, they, they won't have the support that you're used to seeing, you know. Um, but he played for Northampton. That's right, that's right. He was playing in England for a number of years. Yeah. So um, the, the interesting about Foles, and it's actually the same about Bastro, which is uh, to to quote one of our players when he did sign and started playing for the team. Someone said, I asked someone, what, what's your most surprising thing about uh, Foles or Ben Foles? He said, the most surprising thing is he's, he's not a fucking cunt. We all expected a cunt. He's a really nice guy. Humble, quiet, um, mentor, you know, great mentor. And still, and, and and still is. I mean, I'll see him. I'll see, he lives in a neighborhood, so I'll see him tomorrow night. But um, yeah. So that was like very nice guy, humble guy, you know. So, um, and he was old enough to be there for a bit of the start of professionalism, or at least the the the, the tail end of it. You know, he said, you know, uh, and whether it's true or not, he said he trained in a public park with Northampton, you know, with pigeon shit and geese and grannies walking by for the first two years of his professional career, you know. So. He, he wasn't, you know, it wasn't completely shocking to him. Whereas, you know, the kids coming out of the sport academies now, they'd be like, oh my God, like, where's my, you know, where's my, okay. you know, whatever, where's, the, where's my car? And the thing. So, no, Foles is a great guy. Uh, really, and he was into it, you know, and he came out again when he, with his wife, then wife, and he was just, he wanted to come to New York. He was, he was all in and he wasn't upsold. I didn't say anything. Kind of always out of a way to say to make because these guys are moving their lives, you know. What I mean, you don't want to promise over promise, there's no way, at least in my opinion. Um, 
And then Bastro, a couple of years later, I mean, that was, I had an, had, had an investor, Rooney, I think still has an investor, Pierre, and was an amazing guy from France, who used to be the CEO of Stade Francais. Pierre's a really solid guy and fantastic human being. And him and Bastro were friends. Bastro reached out to Pierre and said, I want to, I want to live in New York. So that's what you're, that's what you're, you're not. And that's kind of what you're selling, isn't it? You're selling a city. You're not selling a team. Mm. You know, Bastro wanted to live in New York City. You, you know, you wanted to live in Manhattan in the, in the, in the, in the tall buildings. So even with Bastro, there wasn't much to sell. It was basically, let's get him a visa, you know? And he turned out not like it wasn't money, you know, with either of these guys, it wasn't money. I mean, I have an inkling for what Bastro was making before the year before. I don't know, but I, and I, I won't speak out of school, but he could make a really, really good money. And I, I do know what we paid him. We did not pay him good money. So, um, so there was no salary cap violations, not that it matters to me anymore, but um, yeah, they just want to New York. You're selling New York. You know, it's the same as like, why would you do a sports team in New York? It's like, what an amazing brand. You know, mm. you know, what an amazing fucking brand, the NYC, you know, so, um, so you, you already got a leg up in most places, I think, in, in my opinion, a very biased opinion, but you, you have a leg up. I mean, Yankees sell hats all over the world. They sell hats to people that don't even know what the Yankees are, you know, so, um, so how do you yeah, feel so about that? Do you feel like, I mean, you're the guy that started Rugby United New York now. It's flying. It, they won this year. I think they won 2022. They won the championship, didn't they, in, in the MLR? Yeah. Um, did you sell the club? How did you transition out of the club? Um, well, I sold I sold a piece to um, it's got Pierre Arnaud, Pierre Arnaud very early, uh, 20%. Great guy. Mm. Gave me good money. That went to operations. Um, it's, a, it's a big expense. You know, with not much revenue. So then I sold another piece after a couple of years to uh, a group out of New Zealand. Pierre sold half, 10% of his, and I sold, they got 30% of the, 35% of the club. And it was a long negotiation. Um, but I, you know, against the group, you know, I didn't particularly like or get on with, but I was fucking broke. And the mistake I made was I should have sold them the whole thing because these are professional investors these are hardened battle battle hardened seasoned investors and i'm just a you know a jackass in new york so the mistake i made was not just i I was told in an ambiguous way as you talk to people who built companies and sold them is the exit is really important mm. fuck up the exit it'll 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 hurt it'll hurt you mentally emotionally yeah. and stay with you i thought i fucked the exit up i didn't think about it you know i didn't um it wasn't for lack of mentorship. I have a lot of good people to give me a lot of good advice, which is, which is amazing. It's, you have to listen to us. <laughs> so, yeah, but you, so, as you said so yourself, I, I, America is a place where you make you you make mistakes and you learn from them, and you keep going yeah. again and again and again. But it, the question is, how many exits are you going to do? Um, so basically, the lesson learned was you you made a mistake in the exit, right? I made a mistake in the exit. Yeah, I can say whatever you want to say about the investors that came in. They're, they are deep-pocketed investors and they are sending money from New Zealand into, into Rugby in New York every week. So that's fucking amazing. You know, I mean, that's... Yeah, they, they, they may or may not let me say this, but they secured my legacy, you know? So, um, you know, and that, it was a messy divorce. We did not get on. Um, 
you know, there was a brinkmanship and squabbles over who's paying for what and all the silly stuff that I now realize is very, very common. Uh, just, uh, but it, it, got, it got pretty nasty. And me and there, there are people on the ground here. We, we all got very stressed out by it. So it was a, it was a messy, childish separation. Um, and um, I, it, it, I certainly didn't help, you know, don't pick a fight with a billionaire. <laughs> so, so, especially when it's motivated as those guys, they're, they're good, good. I, this is going to sound counterintuitive. They're good people because they said they would do something and they, they did it. They, they took a team, they've won a championship, they continue to invest in rugby. And, and so, you know, so, and they fought, they fight hard. Mm. So, and tell me, um, right, so all of this is going on. So you're out, you're now out of Rugby United New York. It's 2021. Yeah, 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 2020. 20. Yeah, I think I think it was, we signed at Salem 21, uh, like January 4th, January 1st, but it was, it was 2020 really, you know, the middle of 2020 is when we kind of started the, the separation agreement. Did the uh, whole experience have an effect on your mental health? It did, Connor. Yeah, it did, definitely did. I tell you, you know, I'm 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 bipolar. I'm a lot of things. I'm bipolar is one of them, uh, and depending on which one of my doctors you talk to, they say I also have PTSD from childhood. I guess for whatever that's worth. But um, uh, so I can tend to. Now I'm not using. Terms as a way to hide or, or anything like that, but I think that in a lot of ways, and I have to step away from the rugby to get back to the rugby, so it's not uh, looked at. Looked at, so it's looked at in context. Hmm. In a lot of ways, New York is, is great for someone like me because I can tend to be manic. I intend to enjoy chaos, or I find I don't enjoy it. I find comfort in chaos, and um, so because uh, I think I had somewhat of a chaotic childhood. So that's my weirdly happy place is to be overwhelmed and stressed out um, and working around the clock. So New York suited me very much. Um, it's also very destructive for the same reasons. So setting up a company or, you know, after huge projects as a project manager, sleeping under your desk and working around the clock and smoking and drinking and, you know, rinse, wash, repeat, rinse, wash, repeat. It suited my personality or my psyche, personality, psyche. So when you get to the rugby, then it's a psyche that's well, you know, I looked at the rugby as a startup, you know, so then that's a thing that I think people that I brought on board didn't understand that this is, we have to work hard, but really hard. We don't have a marketing department. We don't have a sponsorship and sales department. We are all the departments. We work hard. And, you know, so that led to some misfires on employees um, because you don't know if people, some people even now see Oh, sports guys got loads of money. I'm just going to cruise. You know, it, it's not the case. And I think, um, you know, that that th that's a cultural thing because they look at sort tech companies and be like, oh my god, like that's a new company and they're now worth eight billion dollars. I mean, those days seem to be gone now. So maybe everybody will learn from that. But um, so my approach was very startup, very like work hard, and that suited my personality. It suited me working around the clock. Chancing it, getting people on the phone, getting meetings, pushing for sponsorship, for bravado, that kind of stuff. But I can tell you that in, in retrospect, just even before I get into sales and stuff, you know, I'm 
I'm going 100 miles an hour, going on a plane to Paris to meet an investor, coming back, going on a plane to London to meet an investor, coming back, going to event after event after event to sell tickets, to get sponsorship, to raise brand awareness, going to schools, you know, working your full-time job. I might, you know, I should have. It's a little bit overdramatic, a little bit dramatic here, but like I should have fucking died. Like my body was as far from a temple as you can possibly get, you know, fueled by alcohol and cigarettes and the odd hit of cocaine and, and bad diet, you know, and, and, you know, and it's, it's, and, you know, and, and yeah, and you're bipolar and, and, you know, my relationship was going to shit. And that was that relationship, that was all on me because I was going to shit up here and all here. You know, mentally and physically falling apart from strain and, and lifestyle. And then you get to, and then you're trying to wrap up your divorce, and which is fine retrospectively, but it's, it's also stressful. Divorce can be very stressful. And then you get to that and you're like, Ugh. it's a lot, you're spending a lot of money, you know, and, um, and you can When were you, when did you go to the doctor to get a diagnosis? Oh, I was diagnosed in 2000. 17 uh uh yeah because um i think my my marriage with samantha we got married well we got married 2010 but we've been together since 19 2000 we've been together since 2000 so uh, my my marriage started to fall apart around 2015 and i was i was acting out i was drinking too much you know it was just i was a mess and um but also aware that i was a mess and couldn't understand i couldn't understand my own behavior you know and um so went to the therapist who sent me to a doctor who put me on a lot of different medications um so i said oh you're bipolar and you know you got these other things um so is that a relief to get you? that diagnosis it wasn't a, sorry it wasn't it wasn't because I have this conflict about about bipolar and even the, the PTSD thing is like that. It's 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 it's. Listen, I've seen a lot of doctors. It's very consistently diagnosed, um, and I'm not disputing it. Uh, mm -hmm. It's mental health is hard to put things on it specifically, but um, the uh, what was I going to say? I, I it's I I don't want to use it as an excuse. You know, I mean. Sometimes you're just a dick. Sometimes it's a bad decision. It's not because you're bipolar or it's not because your dad said mean things to you when you were nine years old or six years old, whatever it is. Sometimes you're just a dick. And so it's, I, I, I get, I get, that's where I get a bit iffy about it. It's for me, not talking about anybody else. Everybody's experiences with everybody's mental health is different. There's no one rule fits all situation mm. ever. Um, but for me, like, oh, <laughs> To say, like, if I go to any of my friends and say, oh, yeah, I was with the doctor, I, I'm bipolar, I don't nobody was surprised. <laughs> so it wasn't exactly like, oh, my God, what the fuck? No way. It was like, yeah, we know. <laughs> so, to, to tell um, me, just describe for people what, what exactly is bipolar. If you could describe it, what would you say it is? Bipolar is, it's, it's like, it's two things. Um, it's, it's. For me, the dangerous, it's lethargy, depression, um, kind of a slowness, kind of a like a sadness, a weight, a crushing weight on top of you where you slow down to a point where it's just 
what's the fucking point? Acute and the other side of it, which is basically, yeah. And the other side of it is the Manic. is the um, the opposite to that. It's extremely high energy, huge self confidence, no need for sleep, uh, which will accelerate and more stimulants, more work, more action, more more of everything. You know, it's it's go go go, hundred miles an hour, two hundred miles an hour, all the time. Um, your your mind is racing off the clock. You can read. You can read like. You can read a, a book a day, no problem. You'll read you'll read this this book in a day, maybe two days. You know, doesn't mean you'll take it in. You fucking read it. You know, you, this thing is just racing, and um, it's very dangerous. That's the one. And once again, for me, that was the one that was very dangerous because the more you go, the more you want to go. The drug is speed. The drug is not drugs. The drug is that speed, the kind of superhuman feeling of speed and it's a weird kind of confidence. It's adrenaline, right? It's, it's, adrenaline. it's adrenaline, yeah. And it's very dangerous. It's extremely dangerous. I can testify to that because you lose your grip on reality very quickly. You lose the... It was almost like a it's almost like a god complex. You feel untouchable. You feel yeah, you know, and it's it, it's when people you make incredibly dumb financial decisions, like buying a rugby team, the rugby team, for example. Although I was very well medicated during that process, mostly. Um sexual decisions around so an increased elevated sexual desire type of sexual thing. desire, mm. yeah, you know, with no appreciation of risk you know like of danger factors like mm. you know where fucking them you know or drug use or alcoholism or overwork you know you can go for two three four days without sleep no problem you're bug-eyed you're going to look like you don't know this but you'll talk mm. to you after you you'll you'll look like you've just did uh, uh a kilo of speed you know because you're, you're you're jumping you mm. know uh, but, but you, you think you're doing you know? good stuff you think you're doing great work and you think you're you're absolutely- work yeah, 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 you're saving the world. So that's that's dangerous. And then um, it, obviously the escalation between the two itself it can be very dangerous. So and all folks, it all obviously fucks with your head. It fucks with your 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 mind and your heart and your soul. And you question, you start questioning yourself. You look at actions. Like, is that me? Is that someone else? So it it becomes this kind of monster. You know, that's you know the monster's there. You, the monster's always hungry you can't seem to get rid of it you know you can't you can't you can you can never it's never satisfied and um, so i got diagnosed and um i started taking lithium which is a classic medication for bipolar and it worked it worked to the effect that um it slowed me way down made me very lethargic very hungry all the time and my sexual my libido just disappeared so and I'm, my memory went to shit i couldn't like i love reading and i i couldn't read because if i read a book if i was to read a book I couldn't remember what was on the page before. So I just, you know, you couldn't read because you'd read a page, you turn the page and you have to go back. I can't remember what I just read. So I stayed on lithium for a while. And then so it gave you a kind of a brain fog, brain fog. Yeah, yeah, fog, a big And, and memory, so that, short-term memory was destroyed. Gone, gone. But it, everybody reacts to medication in their own way. So we tried serotonin. Uh, we tried, I can't remember the names. Um, we tried a bunch of different things and over over the years, you know, I, I'm seeing my psychiatrist. I don't see her often. It's mostly medication control now. So I'm seeing her on Friday. Um, so I've been under Motrogen for 
three, maybe four years, uh, varying levels. I'm on 200 milligrams right now, which is a little bit higher than I was on last year. But uh, yeah, and then I can tell you that um, the rugby, you know, running around like a lunatic, raising money, sorry, raising money, selling tickets, going to events. I think it doesn't, doesn't matter how much the motors or lithium you take, it's going to, it's going to start affecting you, you know, and it did. And, and she got into my head. I was dating a, a wonderful girl at the time, really wonderful girl. And I was taught like, like I just, my dick wasn't working. Now in hindsight, I was a full blown alcoholic, you know, I mean, I was drinking and drinking and drinking because it, it was events to go to, it was players to me and everything was around your alcohol. Mm. Um, and I also know that that's a, that that was a choice. You know, you could easily have met all those people over coffee. You know, who who was deciding to go to the bar? You know, you know that kind of thing. Like when you watch a movie, and you're like, okay, who's the guy? Who's the bad guy here? You know. And anyway, so I got into my head that my dick wasn't working because of the, because of the medication. So I stopped taking the medication. Um, and this is Robbie's up. It's up and running. We're we're doing games. I'm, you know, having staffing issues you know what we're doing we're getting it done um but that relationship fell apart and i couldn't put my finger on it and yeah i have i have no remorse and i don't want to be back with that particular girl um for no other reason than that the journey that road that journey was over but i have a lot of remorse for how i treated how i acted because i was in full-on manic mode you know uh, like super mario mode there for the last four months or five months of that relationship and then um and then and then i went into a i went into a very dark place for a while whilst the rugby was going and um kind of lost my way a little bit you know so I went all the way to the top and it's just it's people make to think that like something happens in your life like you're sad because you're happy because that's not how mental health works it, it doesn't work that way at all and i mean most people are starting to realize that now it's like it just it's just the way it goes you know so i got into a very dark place and and you know spanta my ex-wife and her parents were good to me because they could see it more i guess than because they had that little bit of separation you know my own family probably couldn't see it because they're kind of too close to the too close to the trees and uh and one of the rooney players said it to me um oh god i can't remember he reached out to me he said listen where's the effect we we know something's going on with you. You're not the same person you were a few months ago. Whatever it is, we got your back. We're here for you. It was, it was, I, I literally cried. And no, I didn't cry, but I almost cried because I, I remember the last time I cried specifically because that's someone asked me that recently. But I almost cried. And it, it met uh, a guy, his name is Trevor. It met a, it met a big, you know, it's funny, like a word. No, I'm not saying I would have gone to him. Um, what this, I have a very practical brain. I am bipolar. I can't get life insurance. I'm going to stay above ground until my kids are looked after. So, but it still made a huge difference, you know, mm. a, a huge difference. And I went to see him earlier this year, New Jersey, he's retired now. And I said, you know, thank you, because that was uh, the right words at the right time, you know. So anyway, so so the, the rugby and mental health, let's call it a startup, building a startup with mental health, because it's, it's, they're tough, you know, mm. and I think it's, uh, if I could, and the stress if I financially. Yeah, you know, you're you're hemorrhaging cash at an extraordinary level. You know, you're hemorrhaging the amount of cash that you'd think you'd never have in a lifetime. You know, so um, uh, yeah. And if if I could, uh, if somebody could wave a magic wand and remove 
bipolar from James Kennedy, right? Or take it away forever. Would you go, would you have it taken away? Oh, that's a really good question, Connor. Jeez, that's a good question. Fuck me. I mean, yes and no, because it's that's the next that's the question. Am I who am I? Who are you? You know, am I? I think thinking about it right now, it's it's, a, it's such a good question. I was drinking way too much back then as well. If I stopped drinking, and I have stopped drinking, not, not right, not I stopped drinking for periods of time. And I am uh, again in the new year. Am I still the same person I am? And I become. It may take a few weeks, but I can. I am the same person in the bar with or without drink. It just takes a couple of weeks to get used to the new new city. So I would say, why would it not be the same with bipolar? You know, um, you know. I wonder. You know, as I said, like that time got into my head. The medication was fucking with my dick. It was the excessive abuse of alcohol that was fucking with my dick. And then, you know, your head gets into it, blah, blah, blah. And that, you know. Um, so I think my gut response to that was, was no, I wouldn't give up bipolar because I think I'd be giving up myself. And then my second thought is, yes, I would give it up because I'm still in there, you know. So um, I'd be a lot wealthier. <laughs> <laughs> So bipolar, or maybe not. Maybe, maybe, maybe the mania. Wouldn't, you know, I don't know. I don't know. It's uh... maybe the mania. Like I don't know. I don't. I don't know from your experience. But that intense, those intense episodes of working round the clock on concentrating on a specific subject for an extended period of time and becoming obsessive about something. Perhaps I don't know. I just, I just, I, I asked the question as well. Would it? change james kennedy who knows um would yeah, you well, give it up you don't know the right? i mean yeah i mean you do like you miss it say the superpower part of it is the ability to absorb information this when you're really bad you genuinely feel like you can do anything you know, if you said to me you know hey james let's let's write a book like yeah sure i'll do it tomorrow and i'll write a book tomorrow it'll be gibberish absolute gibberish but I'll tell you it's fucking amazing and you'll uncomfortably smile and lose my number. Uh, but, but, uh, but, you know, so there's a superpower part of it, but it's a fake superpower, you know, because you think you're doing all this, you know, as I said, read a book a day, how much are you retaining? You're retaining almost nothing, mm. you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. I can, you know, pick a book from behind me and say, yeah, I've read them all. I can tell you, you if you ask me questions on them, you'll know when I read them, you'll know what my mental state was when I read them. Because if I can't just give you the cliff notes, and I, I don't doubt that I read them, mm. but in what mental state, you know? Um, so it's it's an interesting thing. What does the uh, um, what does the future hold for James Kennedy? The future is <laughs> I met with my accountants today. Actually, that's where I uh, and um, they were asking me questions about different things. I talked a lot about carbon credits in the past few years and different things that I would be interested in, and. They, they, I meet them like once uh, every six months and they were asking me questions. They're like, no, guys, I'm staying in my lane. I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on real estate. Um, I'm completing buildings that I own um, all over now. And I have a pathway to independence, um, uh, which is 
is very well defined and very well laid out. Is it for the first time in my life, Connor, I have a plan. I've never had a plan before. Like I have a plan with an end goal. It's got dollars and time in, and tied into that. Um, and it's fantastically boring, <laughs> it's, uh, which is a concern for me, a, a major concern for me um, because of that. I, earlier in this conversation, I said about chaos. Mm. Um, and I have other examples of it. I To segue, and I'm looking at the clock because I have to go and pick my kids up. So, so um, mm. I, I had a very toxic relationship during COVID. My COVID relationship was extraordinarily toxic not commenting on the, the individual, but it was. And I think part of me, anybody that knew about that relationship would, was like, why the fuck are you staying in this? This is insane. And that was, yeah, it's fucking nuts. But, uh, but part of me, that's my happy place, is on, is a chaos, uncertainty, you know, that, that, you know, so through the boredom of COVID, I had an extremely contagious you know, I was having uh, panic attacks, anxiety. You know, I went to hospital with a panic attack. Me, you know, it's like it's almost like that was that that was uh, that was a very interesting recent time in my life. Now I'm I'm seeing a fantastic human being, um, work steady. I have a small staff, so not much overhead to worry about. Um, we're opening buildings, and and people are paying rent. That's a dangerous place. <laughs> no, you're in Kids a good place. But it's a good, a good place. place is not a good place for me, you know. So yeah. my accountants are very nervous. They're like, "Don't do anything fucking stupid. Um, just go for long hikes or, you know, take up yoga." Um, well, you? Uh, so the future holds holds uh, sticking to my plan, which is real estate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm fucking. I, I'm not good at many things, but I'm good at this stuff. And I'm um, sticking to my plan. I have a number to get to. I'll get there in a few years, and then. I'm looking at options. I'm looking at options right now. Uh, the idea of maybe becoming a therapist would be nice, or or maybe something. I don't know. Maybe you can teach me how to write, and I can actually write a book. Maybe you can write a book for me. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> maybe we can write a book together. James Kennedy, yeah. thank you very much. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thanks, Connor. It's been fun, man. Sorry about the waffling on and on. No, no, it was amazing. Thank you.